Hey, this is Damien. I want to thank you all for joining us on our second podcast coming up with uh, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein. Um, Sharfstein was the head of public health uh, for the city of Baltimore as the Baltimore Health Commissioner, um, was also the principal uh, deputy for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, um, and was also the Secretary of Health and Mental Hygiene under Governor Martin O'Malley. I think he's been uh, known as one of the best and brightest in public health and uh, came up working in Washington for uh, Congressman Waxman. Um, incredibly detailed, hardworking, research-focused professional and uh, the best and the brightest of uh, the Obama and the O'Malley administrations uh, speak of Josh in, in, in very high terms and very lofty terms. Uh, and I think you'll uh, understand why after you hear him today. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, this is Damien O'Darty with the conference call. We're welcoming Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, who is the vice dean at uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health over there at Johns Hopkins University. He served at every level of public health, and I can imagine the, the head commissioner for the city of Baltimore's health department, then the state of Maryland are uh, during a really transformative time at the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, uh, leading that effort, and then ultimately uh, at the FDA as the principal deputy commissioner there. Dr. Sharfstein, welcome to the conference call. Thanks for having me. Listen, uh, three things I just, I learned from my wife being an expert in public health. I just got to get out of the way. So if you could just tell me the three things you think business leaders and leaders of people should be aware of as we go into these last days of April, uh, what should be on their radar screen? Sure. Um, uh, this is quite an amazing and difficult time. Um, I, it's just incredible how quickly uh, we have changed so much about our lives and how quickly the economy has, uh, you know, shuttered and stopped. So I would say um, the three things would be, number one, that uh, what we have done so far worked that we were facing in the Baltimore region and more broadly around the country, the uh, collapse of the healthcare system from so many sick patients with COVID. And because we slowed down abruptly, we were able to stop that from happening. And so there are many, many people alive who wouldn't be as a result of that. And the sacrifices that people have made were not in vain. So that, that's number one. Number two is that we realize that you know this cannot continue as it's been for a very long time without inflicting really permanent and lasting damage on many people and having health problems that relate to the um, slowdown and, and shutdown of the economy. So we have to come up with a way 
to uh, be able to stave off the worst of the COVID while um, gradually reopening the economy. And um, that's a uh, challenge, but it will be done in stages. Um, and I think Governor Hogan here has set out the right kind of framework. It's based on the basic public health uh, approach of um, keeping an eye on the overall indicators while slowly turning up the dimmer switch, as they say. Um, if we shut off the economy with just flipping the, the switch off, we have to turn it back on a little bit with the dimmer switch so we don't get out ahead of ourselves and have a big second wave of infections. And the third thing I'd say is that we should try to accomplish both tasks at once, um, improve our economic situation while fighting the disease. These are not two completely separate things. So for example, um, if we can find investments at the federal and the state level for uh, contact tracing, that'll involve hiring a lot of people. If we can put people who are uh, sick um, but can't isolate themselves safely at home in hotels, that'll help the hotel industry. We can find ways to utilize some of our economic resources that have been on the sidelines to fight the virus, then it's like a two for one. We're getting an economic jolt and we're pushing against the virus at the same time. So those should be especially good opportunities for us to invest in. Doc, what about uh, testing? I've seen everything from, uh, you know, a text from a friend uh, recommending a $350 test to uh, a Korean airliner into BWI with uh, 500,000 tests uh, in a state of 6 million people. What, what's the testing landscape uh, look like? And as a, as a business owner, what should I be aware of, if, if anything in particular? So tests are part of the strategy to reopen. It's one piece of the puzzle. And we need to be able to test people who have symptoms so that we can make sure that they're isolated and we can track down their contacts. We also want to be able to test when they're outbreaks. So like at a nursing home or a jail, we need to move quick so that we can shut off the outbreak. That's a very important role for testing. We obviously need testing in hospitals um, and of healthcare and essential workers. Now, if we do all those things and we take the actions as a result of the testing, then we can slow the spread of the virus in the community. That's probably the most important thing. But then there'll be other questions, which is, well, should we be testing before people enter our building? Before, you know, should I have our workers regularly tested? And probably the number one most important thing is to make sure that people who are sick aren't coming to work. So sick leave is extremely important. And also policies, asking people whether they're sick and sending them right back home again if they're sick to get tested is very important. Um, whether somebody who's perfectly well and has no known contacts should be tested on some kind of regular basis is a question people have raised, but there's not really a solid answer to that. Um, it could be depending on the test that the results um, in that population are not that reliable. So um, I don't necessarily think a small business needs to be thinking that it has to be doing testing above and beyond what the public health um, testing availability is. But they definitely should be re-engineering their workplace so that you know people aren't coming into close contact with each other. If it's a retail business, making sure that there are not too many customers and that people are wearing masks and they're staying six feet at least away from each other. And they should be making sure that people aren't coming in or coming to work sick. 
um, and that they're able to get a test and, and stay home if necessary. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, or actually, I should say very credible, very credible. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just the dosage of sense making we're, we're looking for. Um, just two more questions. Uh, the, the penultimate one here. Uh, you were a chief architect of the total cost of care model in Maryland. Uh, really a unique um, experience with remarkable outcomes, really sort of the envy of the nation in many respects. And then this pandemic occurs. I, I wonder, um, it seems to accelerate the future, they say, these sorts of crises. And I just wonder what this says about the delivery system that we have here in uh, Maryland. Uh, does it, does it, seem extra resilient or extra vulnerable? What what has this pandemic taught this remarkable new model? So in most parts of the country, the hospitals are entirely or virtually entirely dependent on fee-for-service revenue. And when a lot of that dried up as a result of getting ready for COVID, they just lost enormous amounts of money requiring a lot of you know, financial uh, transfers to keep them afloat. And there are hospitals that are really at the brink of closing because of the loss of elective surgery and elective admission revenue. Maryland hospitals, because of the system that's been put in place, are relatively protected um, because their hospital budgets are really set by the state. Um, now, that doesn't cover the physician fees. So you're seeing definite reductions in revenues from the loss of elective procedures. But the hospitals themselves are much more resilient here, I think, as a result of that, as in they are in Pennsylvania, where they have uh, global budgets also for rural hospitals. Um, and I think that there is a lesson. You know, in Maryland, we were able to reduce admissions, do a lot more telemedicine, and not completely sink the financial model of the hospital, whereas in other places, it is well underwater. And hopefully when we rebuild, we won't just go back to a very inefficient fee-for-service system around the country. We'll look at the more resilient financial systems like in Maryland or Pennsylvania or Vermont, and you'll see a broader adoption of more global payment approaches. Josh, last question for you. Uh, your dad, a big giant in the field of medicine, uh, leading the institution that welcomed uh, everybody from Zelda Fitzgerald to Princess Leia. Uh, just a giant in behavioral health. Anything he told you as a young doctor, as a young man that would, that uh, didn't quite click that, you know, now that uh, you're creeping up near my age, that uh, is making a lot more sense to you? Uh, well, you know, um, my dad is a psychiatrist. He's um, uh, ran Shepard Pratt for many years and you know, had a lot of different uh, challenges that he faced in different parts of his career. And I turned to him all the time for advice and guidance. He was very um, helpful to me when I was the health commissioner and the health secretary. And, um, you know, very good judgment about people, about problems. He's also very, uh, very savvy about budgets, which is very good to have in a, you know, close... Uh, <laughs> close, someone close to you when you're dealing with budgets. Um, you know, I think um, what he always said to me was that uh, psychiatry was the best field of medicine, 
but um, <laughs> I, I'm still resisting that one. I'm a pediatrician and um, I, I like pediatrics a lot. My, my mom's a pediatrician, so my dad has a psychiatric explanation for why I like pediatrics more. But in all seriousness, I think um, we're learning now just how important mental health is for people. We're, we're seeing so many um, uh, traumas that people are experiencing as a result of this, losing their job, uh, losing their loved ones, not being able to be there by their side, having funerals with hardly anyone there. I mean, this is really a all hands on deck moment for the field of mental health. And I, you know, I've been really impressed by the work that so many clinicians have done switching over to phone or video conference um, the, by the volunteers at places like pro bono counseling, where many, many therapists are volunteering to help people by the lay volunteers, as they say, hundreds of people who are calling thousands of their neighbors to check in on them. I mean, there's been quite a mobilization around this. Uh, the Baltimore Neighbors Network is a great example. And so I think, um, I think I've, uh, even though I haven't accepted that psychiatry is the best field of medicine, I think I do appreciate more than ever uh, just how important mental health is uh, for people to be, to be uh, successful and to sur survive and thrive, or maybe not, maybe just to make it through uh, challenges like this. So grateful. Dr. Josh Sharfstein, thanks so much for joining us on Center Maryland. Thanks for having me, Damien. Thank you, brother.